Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, August 25th, 2013. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator for this morning. Today we will be taking a look into the AA 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, which contain Bill W.'s essays on the 12 Steps. In the foreword, to the AA 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, it is written, quote, AA's 12 Steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole, end of quote. All of us have come to this program as a result of the constant frustration and constant defeat and pain we experienced compulsive overeating. We came to a willingness to take step one. The pain brings on this willingness. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. This morning, two recovered compulsive overeaters Marjorie G. and Sarah B. join us to share from the AA 12 and 12 regarding Step 1 and how it relates to their personal experience. And first, I welcome Marjorie G. to the line. Good morning. Thank you, Leah. I am Marjorie, and I no longer live in a hopeless state of mind and body. According to the big book, Forward to the First Edition, that means I am recovered. According to me, that means I am not finished, that I have not reached some pinnacle of human exaltation. It simply means that I no longer live in a hopeless state of mind and body. I appreciate so much, Leah, introducing who the real main speaker is, at least during the time that I'm speaking, the real main speaker is the book 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, the essay on step one. That's the star. I'm just a minor player. The way I read these pages, I read myself into the pages. And I'm going to invite you also to read yourself into the pages. Pay more attention to what the book says and what's going on inside of you. We admitted we were powerless over food, and although the book says alcohol, I wrote in food. We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. That's one of the primary ideas in this approach to step one. And it's sandwiched. There's a sandwich in this approach because on the very last page, it's the next to the last paragraph, it talks about the delicious part of the sandwich, the other part, the paradox of step one, the success of step one, because there's the failure, the defeat, but the, but the success, and it's in the paragraph that begins, why all this insistence? 
Then it's about three or four lines down. It says, for practicing AA's remaining 11 steps means the adoption of attitudes and actions that almost no alcoholic compulsive overeater who is still drinking or overeating can dream of taking. Having a new set of attitudes and actions is really the success. That is the gift. And it's wonderful to me that I'm presented with here's the devastation and then here's the reward for going through that devastation. I wish I could have gotten the reward other ways. Perhaps there are other people who can do it. I'm not one of them. So I looked at that word defeat, and I've heard people talk about surrender. I've heard people talk about compliance. In fact, there was literature that I used to be able to pick up at meetings that had been published by some of AA's friends in the medical profession, Dr. Tebow in particular, And it talked about compliance, it talked about surrender, and it talked about conversion. And to me, I found defeat was the only thing that made sense. And the reason why I talk about what made sense to me, and I'm going to jump over to the big book, in the chapter We Agnostics, on page 47, it says, When therefore we speak to you of God, we mean your own conception of God. This applies, too, to other spiritual expressions which you find in this book. I asked myself what defeat meant to me. I asked myself what all these words meant to me. There was that word surrender. And I pictured two armies on the battlefield, and one army was getting the better of the other army. And the army that was losing decides, well, why don't we just give ourselves up rather than continue to fight? Because they're going to win anyway, and we're going to end up in as prisoners anyway, and why not save ourselves having to get so wounded? To me, that was surrender, and I was the losing team, the losing army, and there was no way I was going to give up the fight. It would just be too humiliating to me, and I kept up that fight. I kept up the fight. There was that book, the big book that was published in 1939. This came out in 1952 and 53. It was published by the the AA Grapevine. Thirteen years had elapsed, but I had the big book, but I still wasn't going to surrender. I still waited for that defeat. So practically no one, of course. Good. I was part of that practically no one. Up to that point, I had felt totally all alone, but suddenly here I am, and I'm part of a big group of people. I'm not the only one who's the fighter. I'm not the only one who's not willing to give up. 
Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. That idea of instinct, I didn't know what instinct was, but later on in step four it talks about instinct, and it helps me understand it. At step one, I didn't need to understand it. When it talks about personal powerlessness, I came to understand that as human powerlessness, that it was not possible for me or any other human being to achieve certain things. This was another beginning for me. This was another hopeful sign for me. I had something in common with other human beings. Again, that was very radical to me. It is truly awful to admit that glass in hand, and of course I changed that into fork in hand, but really it was really, I wasn't eating with a fork, I was eating with my hands, stuffing the food in. It is truly awful to admit that glass in hand, we have warped our minds into such an obsession for destructive drinking, eating, that only an act of providence can remove it from me. There's another bunch of hope for me. Because it said, we have warped our minds. That means that I did it. That also meant that if I did it to myself, that just maybe, 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 I might be able to undo it. And then when it talked about an act of providence, that made me think about that chapter, We Agnostics, again. And there was a sense of hope. Something, there was something else besides my own human powerlessness. That, again, was news to me. Here in step one, it's not saying you have to believe in this providence. It's not saying you have to even consider that it exists, only that there is something that can provide. And I like the idea, when I really got down to thinking about it, I like the idea that there might be a provider because I had never had a provider. I came into OA in January of 1976. I was in my late 20s. I spent the next nine years in OA I came in, I was probably a size 14 or 16. Over the next nine years, I reached a size 44. I had periods where I was not compulsively overeating, and I had periods when I was compulsively overeating. And somewhere in those nine years, I encountered somebody. I did not come in contact with people in OA who had any continuous abstinence or sobriety with food, but I did come in contact with somebody in AA who I saw as a drunk, and then I saw him as a sober, wonderful person that was over a period of years, and I saw that the way his drinking was and his failure at AA was very much like my own failure at OA. And I began to talk to him, of course not telling him that I was looking 
to him for guidance on my food. I was looking to him for guidance on what brought about this change in him. I believe it was that fellow that told me about these people who would come around and talk about the big book. And I started going out to those weekends when those it was it was a couple of fellows from Arkansas, Tennessee, Oklahoma area. And they came to another part of the state. I was living in South Florida. They were they would show up once or twice a year a few counties north of me and I would go and I would listen. And I would take notes and they were talking about the big book. And although I seemed to be the only one back in my county, particularly among the people that I was around, and this one particular drunk, now sober guy, who were participating in those things. And I found it ironic that um, the night after the beginning of that weekend, those weekends, there would be a after the first night's meetings, there would be an ice cream social. And it seemed like there was more conversation than there was of eating ice cream. And I I just found that terribly, terribly boring. So back to the book. I'm in the second paragraph. No other kind of bankruptcy is like this one. Alcohol, food, now now become the rapacious creditor, bleeds us of all self-sufficiency and all will to resist its demands. Once this stark fact is accepted, our bankruptcy as going human concerns is complete. That's the state that I finally reached when, on May the 8th, 1985, I became abstinent, and I've remained abstinent since that time. So whereas I came in a size 14 or 16, reached a size 44, now for the past 28 years and some months, I am a size 4 or a size 6 or a size 8 petite. Occasionally I am a uh, where children's size medium or size large. There's been some stability and some sense of I'm living a human life now. I look like an ordinary person. But upon entering AA or OA, we soon take quite another view of this absolute humiliation. It's interesting to me to look at that word humiliation because the humiliation that I felt seems now to have come from the outside. But The steps talk about humility. It talks about humility in step seven in the 12 and 12, and it talks about humility in numerous places in the big book. The humility came from inside, and it somehow somehow counteracted the humiliation that I felt from outside. And the humiliation that I felt from outside was a combination of what I did to myself, and also 
putting myself in the position where circumstances or people were humiliating. I was in situations that were humiliating to me. So, for example, I'd already been through marriage at 19, divorce when I was in my 20s, and then before my recovery began, I was back in the food, I was in and out of the food, during one of those periods of time when I was abstinent, somewhat ab- approximately abstinent, and thin, I met a fellow, we planned to marry, one day I was visiting his home, he went out to walk the dog, there was no food in his kitchen cabinet other than the food for the dog and what according to him was some stale granola and I stood in front of the cabinet while he was out and the dog food I knew it was dog food it actually looked better than the stale granola but I did eat the stale granola and I was so humiliated by what I had done course I was never going to say anything to him and there were numerous other incidents like that I put myself in the position to be hurt by that humiliation I ultimately ended the engagement I don't know that I could have ever faced owning up to many of the things that I had done in that relationship and um, it was all because I put the food first. That was humiliating to me. Then the book, and I'm in paragraph three, goes on to say, we perceive that only through utter defeat, this is the second sentence, only through utter defeat, oh, there's that word again, are we able to take our first steps toward liberation and strength. Our admission of personal, human, that's my word, powerlessness, finally turn out to be firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives may be built. Happy was something that was absolutely impossible for me to conceive of, and yet that word comes up again and again and again. It's in the, it's in the next paragraph, happiness. But that guy that I saw in AA, he was happy, Joe and Charlie, those guys who delivered the big book seminars, they were happy. Those people at the at the big book seminars who were occasionally taking a bite of their ice cream were happy. I began to see something that was connected with the big book of recovery. We know that little good can come to any alcoholic compulsive overeater who joins A-A-O-A, unless he has first accepted his devastating weakness and all its consequences. My devastating weakness, I now see, was really that I was a human. And it wasn't so devastating once I began to realize that I didn't have to be anything more than other than human. Until he so humbles himself, now there's the inner state. I'm doing something. I'm no longer being humiliated. I'm humbling myself. Until he so humbles himself, his sobriety, if any, 
will be precarious. That was me. I had precarious sobriety with regard to food. Of real happiness, he will find none at all. Proved beyond doubt by an immense experience, this is one of the facts of AA life. Now, the big book came out in 1939, and there was not a lot of books coming out in the 1940s. This book came out in 1952, 1953. Actually, it might have come out first in the, as, as parts of the grapevine since it is copyrighted by the grapevine. I've never checked that out. But there were, at the time of the big book, having been copyrighted, there were evidences of recovery, and there were even more by the time this came out. And although I hadn't seen any in OA, I really did believe that it was possible. The principle that we shall find no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat is the main taproot from which our whole society has sprung and flowered. There's another evidence. There's that word again, defeat. It's the third time. Now I'm in the fifth paragraph, and it begins, when first challenged. When first challenged to admit defeat, most of us revolted. We had approached AA expecting to be taught self-confidence. Self-confidence was really what I wanted. That was the buzzword back in the 50s and 60s. But then it tells me that self-confidence was no good whatever. It was a liability. Our sponsors declared that we were the victims of a mental obsession so subtly powerful that no amount of human willpower could break it. There was, they said, no such thing as the personal conquest of this compulsion by the unaided will, relentlessly deepening our dilemma. Our sponsors pointed out our increasing sensitivity to alcohol, an allergy, they called it. Yep, that sounds just like Dr. Silkworth in the big book, Chapter We Doctor's Opinion. The tyrant alcohol wielded a double-edged sword over us. First, we were smitten by an insane urge that condemned us to go on drinking, eating, and then by an allergy of the body that ensured we would ultimately destroy ourselves in the process. That sounded good to me. I really, until I met up with the people who were recovered, I really wasn't sure that I wanted to be around this life. And so ultimately, ultimate destruction just sounded really good. But then being around people who were actually happy, who were recovered, I began to question that. But it was nine years between when I came in and when I finally admitted my defeat, finally took step one. I came in as somebody who had not yet hit bottom, and it talks about excuse that. Me, if you I can't par- hear you. Hello? I, excuse me, I can't hear you. Can the moderator press star six or something? Continue, Marjorie. Okay. Give me a second to catch up where I am. A few paragraphs later, it's going to talk about people who have not yet hit bottom, 
when I came in to OA, I was one of those people who had not yet hit bottom. But by the time I did hit bottom in 1985, I was one of these people that it talks about later on that page, a last gasper. I had to get to that point. I'm moving on to the very end, next to the last paragraph. It begins, why all this insistence that every AA must hit bottom first? The answer is that few people will sincerely try to practice the AA program unless they have hit bottom. For practicing AA's remaining 11 steps means the adoption of attitudes and actions that almost no alcoholic compulsive overeating eater who is still drinking or eating can dream of taking, who wishes to be rigorously honest and tolerant, steps one through four, who wants to confess his faults to another, steps four and five, and make restitution, steps six through nine, for harm done. Who cares anything about a higher power, step three, let alone meditation and prayer, step 11. Who wants to sacrifice time and energy in trying to carry AA's message to the next sufferer, step 12. No, the average compulsive overeater, self-centered in the extreme, doesn't care for this prospect unless he has to do these things in order to stay alive himself. Somewhere during those nine years, I began to want to stay alive myself. Sometimes all it was was curiosity about what might life be like around the corner. I never imagined that I was going to get to be um, (laughs) middle-aged, I never guessed that I was going to get to be beyond middle age, and yet here I am. And my life is more enjoyable the longer I go along. I'm still curious about what's around the next corner, and I also have the satisfaction of knowing that I went through my 40s being abstinent, I went through my 50s being abstinent. And when I say abstinent, I mean emotionally sober, physically sober, and under the guidance of a power greater than myself. I'm offering you the opportunity to really look at step one and read yourself into these pages. And perhaps, now this is not the only way to live your life, but perhaps you too will want to practice to adopt these attitudes and actions and live a life that's better than the life that you've been living. Thank you for listening to me, and I'll give it back to Leah. Thank you so much, Marjorie, for sharing this morning and your experience with step one as it relates to uh, the AA 12 and 12 essay here on step one. Now we'll move on to our second speaker, Sarah B., please. Good morning. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much, Marjorie. That was lovely. My name is Sarah B. I am a recovered compulsive eater from Washington, D.C., 
and I'll give you a brief summary qualification. My um, back-to-back abstinence date is December 31st, 2005, and pre-pregnancy I had lost 110 pounds, and now I my weight is in God's hands, and I'm enjoying an abstinent pregnancy. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to um, also, of course, share on... Um, the text, the AA 12 and 12 step one, and try to weave in some of my some of my experience. So, um, just a quick note: I do read the text exactly as written, and I do encourage you to change for yourself, alcohol and alcoholic, to food and compulsive eater, under eater, whatever fits for you. Um, I think that's that's great and that's important. So, step one: we admitted we were powerless over alcohol; that our lives had become unmanageable. Um, I'm on page 21. Who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It is truly awful to admit that glass in hand, we have warped our minds into such an obsession for destructive drinking that only an act of providence can remove it from us. So the first paragraph is delving right into the idea of personal powerlessness. And for me, that brought up all of the many ways I tried to control my compulsive eating. I have a note here to refer to the big book on page 31. It reminds me of this text on page 31 in the big book. Here are some of the methods we have tried. Drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, never drinking alone, never drinking in the morning, drinking only at home, never having it in the house never drinking during business hours, et cetera, and then it ends, we could increase the list ad infinitum. And that was certainly true with me and food and compulsive eating and all the ways I tried to control my eating without uh, reliance on a higher power. I did all the commercial pay-and-way diets. I did a ton of fad diets. I started dieting in the 80s when I was a child, and that was a big era of self-help books, and um, I bought every one of them and um, got into every one of them. And then probably the most desperate thing I did was the shots and pills route. Um, my mom drove me across state lines to a really shady doctor who um, injected me with a lot of speed and you know, was shocked that I couldn't lose weight. And the reason I couldn't lose weight is that no matter how much speed he gave me, I was still binging so much that I couldn't, um, my metabolism couldn't uh, outrun what he was putting in my body. I was just taking in so much more than I could possibly burn off. So I definitely had years and years of powerlessness, and I definitely had the obsession for drinking, or for me, for eating, that only an act of providence could remove from me. I looked up the word providence. I was pretty sure I knew what it meant, but... I like to be precise in my language when I'm not sure. And it says divine guidance or care. And I thought that word choice here is so beautiful because that is definitely the only thing that saved me from myself in my compulsive eating. Um, This was the bedrock of my powerlessness. This was the beginning of my admission of powerlessness. And therefore, it was the foundation for my healing and recovery. Uh, I also want to let you know, so I have one more note about food, and then I want to say something. So, 
you know, one of the things when I was thinking about powerlessness, um, I have to tell you, I hate snow. I grew up in the South um, in warm weather, and I am terrified of snow and ice. And so it came as quite a shock to my husband and probably to me um, in another level that we were having a terrible snowstorm um, in Washington, and I decided I had to go out and get a milkshake. And I mean, it was just pouring down snow. It was icing. It was hailing. And I was like, no, I've got to go out. I can't wait. And my husband's like, you won't even take the dog out when it's snowing. What do you mean you're going to get in the car? And, you know, to me, that just came up when I was reading this the other day that, you know, that's how warped I was. That's how um, obsessive I was about food and particularly for me about sugar. And that obsession um, got me up to 250 pounds and a whole lot of misery, which leads me to my next point, that, you know, the text is definitely talking about powerlessness over a substance, but then it's talking about our lives becoming unmanageable. And, yes, that includes our behavior around our addictive substance, but for most of us, that's not where it ends. And for me, it's very important when I reflect on step one to remember that it was not just about the food. My entire life was unmanageable. There is kind of an image of a happy, joyous, fat lady in our society, and that person might exist, and I have to tell you, I was not her. <laughs> that was not me. I was hell on wheels. My physical manifestation of my disease was really showing what I was like inside, and I was an angry, bitter I'm scared, self-conscious woman, and I acted out on the world from that point of view. I treated people, both people close to me and strangers, very badly. I caused a lot of havoc, a lot of drama. Uh, I was really an unpleasant person, and that's important for me to reflect on in my powerlessness. Yes, I had a food addiction, no doubt about it, but my life was out of control, and I, I d it did take... Um, it did take God, it took an act of providence to, to heal me and to, and to help me recover. Um, again, page 21, second paragraph, no other kind of personal bankruptcy is like this one. Alcohol, now become the rapacious creditor, bleeds us of all self-sufficiency and all will to resist its demands. Once this stark fact is accepted, our bankruptcy is, is going human concerns is complete. But upon entering AA, we soon take quite another view of this absolute humili humiliation. We perceive that only through utter defeat are we able to take our first steps toward liberation and strength. Our admissions of personal powerlessness finally turn out to be the firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives may be built. I loved Marjorie's uh, reference to the sandwich, that... Um, that we have this defeat and that that is sandwiched by our redemption and program. I thought that was such a lovely analogy, and this paragraph sums that up. And, again, like this says, our admissions of personal powerlessness were the bedrock for our recovery. This reminds me of, you know, the text, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we can see how our experience may benefit others. So um, I had to admit this personal powerlessness to move forward with the other 11 steps, um, and we'll go into that a little bit later in the chapter. We know that little good can come to any alcoholic who joins AA unless he has first accepted his devastating weakness. 
Until he so humbles himself, his sobriety, if any, will be precarious. Of real happiness, he will find none at all. Proved beyond doubt by an immense experience, this is one of the facts of AA life. And boy, this brought me back to when I came into AA, sorry, to OA for hopefully uh, the last time, which was the summer of 2004. I had kind of dabbled in OA a little bit before as part of my trying to figure out how to diet and lose weight and still eat everything I wanted to eat, which, if you're wondering, didn't work. And um, I finally came back and um, decided to get serious about recovery, but it took me some time. And I remember working with a sponsor, and I was doing something with my food that um, I felt was very much against God's will for me at the time. And my sponsor called me on it, and she said, you know, you can't be working a 12-step program and engaging in behavior that you say is not God's will for you. And I said, look, lady, I'm on step one. I'm not on step three. And she said, okay, you are not serious, and I'm done with you. <laughs> and um, and she let me go as a sponsee. And um, it kind of set me off on my last, I don't want to say my last binge, because I never quit binging, but it really took me down to a new low of realizing that I had to get very serious about this. And I was led to a recovered sponsor who scared the heck out of me and really had what I wanted. And what I was thinking of when I was reading this paragraph was how I had to surrender to her. And when I started working with her, I, I called her, told her the situation I was in and said, you know, I want to work with somebody. I want to get better. My life can't keep going on like this. And she said, okay, that's fine. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to call in your food. You're going to, you know, commit your food you're going to weigh and measure your food. You're going to read from the big book every day. You're going to write from the big book regularly. And she had a whole list of requirements. And I am not kidding. I tried to negotiate with her on every one of those requirements. And, you know, thank God she stood her ground and she said, you know, why don't you just think about this? And if you're interested in working with me, you call me back and you let me know. And, you know, at the time I remember having such struggle and many years later, that sponsor said to me, you know, if I had told you to jump off a cliff, you would have, which was not my my experience at the time, but I'm glad that was what she read. And I did, like this paragraph said, I, I did humble myself, and it was very, very hard for me um, to humble myself first to the disciplines of the program and then to the work that the 12 steps were going to, to do to me, the, the work that the steps would, would act upon me. Um, it's funny, I thought it was so degrading to to do this work and to, to call in my food. I don't know why I didn't think it was degrading to drive in snowstorms and to, you know, drive around and around and around a city block um, trying to get a parking space for so I could go in and get ice cream, but I thought it was degrading to call in my food to a sponsor. So that's that's where I was in my disease. So reading this paragraph took me took me back that and took me back to that and um you know I have all these notes in my 12 and 12 and one of my earliest notes I can tell says if you humble yourself and accept this there is strength the power is in the humility so I thought that was kind of cute <laughs> um on page 22 um when first challenged to admit defeat most of us revolted we had approached AA expecting to be taught self-confidence. 
Then we had been told that so far as alcohol is concerned, self-confidence was no good whatever. In fact, it was a total liability. Our sponsors declared that we were the victims of a mental obsession so powerful that no amount of human willpower could break it. There was, they said, no such thing as the personal conquest of this compulsion by the unaided will. Relentlessly deepening our dilemma, our sponsors pointed out our increasing sensitivity to alcohol, an allergy, they called it. The tyrant alcohol wielded a double-edged sword over us. First, we were smitten by an insane urge that condemned us to go on drinking, and then by an allergy of the body that ensured we would ultimately destroy ourselves in the process. Few indeed were those who, so assailed, had ever won through in single-handed combat. It was a statistical fact that alcoholics almost never recovered on their own resources, and this had been true apparently ever since man had first, first crushed grapes. Well, there's nothing, not that I would want to, but there's nothing in that paragraph that I could uh, argue with. I listed some of the research I did um, that didn't work for me. I told you guys about that before. And, you know, this reminded me again of the big book. I think it's important to remember that the 12 and 12 is a commentary on the big book. And what this reminded me of when I read it instantly was Roman numeral page 29 in the big book, which is the last paragraph of that page in the doctor's opinion. And I'm just going to read that just to refer you to it. Um, it says they took, they took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interest so that the important appointment was not met. That's funny. That's not what I wanted to read, actually. <laughs> I was like, that's not where I was going. Sorry, it's the top. It's the top of that page. That's what I wanted to refer you to. I mean, the last part was fine, too. But um, So the bottom, actually, of Roman numeral, page 28. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, the phenomenon of craving develops. They pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. So that, to me, is one of the pages that this paragraph is referring to. And, um, you know, the phenomenon of craving, as we talk about so often on the daily meeting, is is so powerful um, and starts with the obsession of the mind and then we make a decision and pick up and then the phenomenon of craving is kind of off to the races. From my own experience, um, I have an interesting experience of living with a truly normal eater. And sometimes I feel a little bit like I'm, like I'm at a zoo because I'm, like I'm looking at this exotic animal and I don't relate to how my husband eats. Um, I can give you two examples. One is we do live within um, walking. We live in the middle of Washington D.C. and we live within walking distance to several ice cream parlors. And it always shocks me that my husband is able to walk to one of those places and get a single scoop cone. And when he first did it, I was like, "What's wrong with you? That's that's a kid size." He's like, "No, that's all I need." I was like, "What do you mean that's all you need?" And to me, that's anathema to to get a single scoop of ice cream. 
And then the other thing that really came up for me, you know, reading this and looking at myself versus a normal eater who doesn't have the allergy is that um, the last uh, few years have been very, very hard um, on my family and me. We've had quite a few tragedies, one right after the other. And after one particularly bad one, um, my husband uh, was drowning his sorrows in uh, in a pizza and ate this whole pizza, and he was like, oh, my God, that was terrible. I can't do that again. I've got to really get my food on track. And he did, and you know, and then just proceeded to eat healthfully and like a normal person. And, you know, I had enough awareness. I mean, thank God I didn't indulge in that. But, you know, that's what a normal eater can do. And for me, um, if I were to do that, it would have absolutely triggered my allergy. And like I said, I would have been off to the races. So very, very grateful of that knowledge. And I didn't mean to compare my husband to an animal in a zoo, but it is a little bit like living with an exotic creature. Um, the last paragraph on page 22, in AA's pioneering time, none but the most desperate cases could swallow and digest this unpalatable truth. And then the next few paragraphs talk about um, that it used to be that when the book was written that it was really for last gasp alcoholics and that over time more people were able to stop their stop their um, compulsive drinking or compulsive eating before it got terrible because they were able to connect to the experience of low-bottom addicts. And for me what this brought up was the fact that you know, looking back on my life, my disease was progressive. And, you know, I can't tell you an absolute tipping point in my life where it went from a little bit of a problem to a huge problem. But I can tell you the more freedom I got, the more freedom my disease got. So when I was 15 growing up in Tennessee and I got my own car, um, I used to um, binge at terribly at fast food places. I would go from one fast food place to another and get meals at every single place I would go to. And, you know, I was 15, 16 years old when that was happening, and my binging actually got worse after that. It was, at that point, isolated to the afternoons. And then as I got older, it was an all-day affair. So, you know, it was definitely progressive. And it says that here in the last paragraph on page 23, by going back in our own drinking histories, we could show that years before we realized that we were out of control, that our drinking even then was no mere habit, that it was indeed the beginning of a fatal progression. So I do think it's worth adding here. Um, I just thought of this. I have worked with sponsees who have been thin and who have not had outward manifestations of the disease, and at times they've been... um, they felt a little unwelcome at OA meetings because people have said, you don't belong here, you don't have an eating problem. And meanwhile, their cholesterol was 300, and they were binging their brains out um, and just weren't wearing it on their bodies yet for a variety of reasons. So um, the disease is absolutely a fatal progression, and um, you know I think that it's just important to keep that in mind. That said, I don't think that if someone had come to me when I was 16 and said, you know, you're on a fatal track and, you know, this is going to get progressive. I don't think at the age of 16 I could have had the self-knowledge or the resources to stop it. And I personally think I had to get to the incredible low that I got to to be willing to grasp hold of the solution. But um, there are people who have that experience, which is wonderful because it saves them hopefully from, from years of heartache. So let's look at page uh, 24 
why all this insistence that every AA must hit bottom first? The answer is that few people will sincerely try to practice the AA program unless they have hit bottom. For practicing AA's remaining 11 steps means the adoption of attitudes and actions that almost no alcoholic who is still drinking can dream of taking. Oh, my God. Nothing could be more true than that for me. Um, I was so scared of my step work. Um, It's funny because before I did it, I was mostly afraid of step four. In hindsight, I should have mostly been afraid of step nine. (laughs) But those steps, those action steps, four through nine, were the steps that for me brought my recovery, brought very deep healing to my life, and I would argue vociferously saved my life. Um, the, The harder the work for me in this program, the more beneficial it has been, the more dramatic it has been. Those are the steps that for me have led to the psychic change that the big book talks about that's necessary for our recovery. And then this paragraph on 24 says, for me, it it summarizes the steps. Who wishes to be rigorously honest and tolerant? That's steps one through three. And in this case, we're talking about being rigorously honest about our disease, like admitting our powerlessness. You know, are we or are we not food addicts? I'll tell you, if you are a food addict, if you you are a compulsive eater, you – the only way for me and for many people to get better is to do the rest of these steps. Uh, that's my experience. Nothing else worked for me. So, um, and then we have, you know, who wants to confess his faults to another and make restitution for harm done? Those are steps four through nine. Who cares anything about a higher power, let alone meditation and prayer? Steps 10 and 11. Who wants to sacrifice time and energy in trying to carry AA's message to the next sufferer? That's step 12. No, the average alcoholic, self-centered in the extreme, doesn't care for this prospect unless he has to do these things in order to stay alive himself. I was definitely self-centered in the extreme, and I would say that that's still my tendency, and the program is what helps me stay out of that self-centeredness. It reminds me a day at a time to work with the still-suffering compulsive eater. It reminds me to be of service to my community and to my family. Um, And, yes, I do have to do these things in order to stay alive. And by that I mean if I don't do these things, if I don't continually work the 12 steps and try to practice these principles in all my affairs, there's no doubt that I will relapse. And, you know, that is the last thing I want. Um, So, you know, yes, I believe that we can be recovered, but that doesn't mean that we graduate. We have to continually work on this. And so, yes, I do have to do these things. But what has been such a blessing for me in program is that these things have become a pleasure. That doesn't mean that every day they're a pleasure, but overall they're really a pleasure. I do enjoy doing my step work. I do enjoy connecting with my higher power. And I definitely enjoy helping other still-suffering compulsive eaters to the degree that I can. Um, sometimes I feel like it's one of, you know, the main things I can contribute in my life. So, you know, like the beginning of this chapter said, you know, this personal powerlessness, you know, this this terrible defeat is actually the bridge to our freedom. So, and then the last paragraph says it better than I could. Under the lash of alcoholism, we are driven to AA, and there we discover the fatal nature of our situation. Then and only then do we become as open-minded to conviction and as willing to listen as the dying can be. We stand ready to do anything which will lift the merciless obsession from us. 
And so my note on that is that my pain became my greatest asset. And um, the disease of compulsive eating is such hell, and I just spent 20 minutes talking about that. The physical problems, you know, weighing 250 pounds, not being able to fit in one bus seat, the emotional problems, lashing out at family and strangers, the spiritual problem of not trusting and connecting with a higher power. It's a very, very hard way to live. The amazing thing is there is a solution, and it's free. It's definitely not easy, um, but boy, is it worth it. It is so worth it, and I'm so grateful that we have the solution outlined for us in the big book. We have commentary on it in the 12 and 12, and we have a beautiful fellowship in this meeting to support us on our journey. Thank you for letting me share my experience, and with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Sarah B., so very much. Thank you both to both of our speakers this morning, Marjorie and Sarah, for giving your time and your energy, relating your personal experience on step one and sharing it from the text, from these essays in the AA 12 and 12. Now we open up the line for any questions you might have related to anything that was shared by our speakers this morning regarding step one. And you can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute. Hi, this is Kathy. Uh, May I ask a question? Yes, Kathy, go ahead. Thanks, Leah. Uh, Thank you, both of you, Marjorie and Sarah. It was really wonderful to go through uh, step one in the way that each of you did it. Um, And I am struck by the last couple of paragraphs of the chapter that both of you referred to where it really um, forecasts in step one all that we need to be willing to do um, in order to move forward in recovery. Um, and I was just wondering um, if either or both of you would like would be willing to tell us um, uh, something about what you do on a daily basis um, to keep uh, working the steps as it is outlined in step one. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Marjorie, would you like to address that question? Hi, this is Marjorie. I'm smiling. I'm actually grinning ear from ear because I had that same question pop into my mind that I wanted to ask it of Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so we admitted we were powerless over alcohol food that our lives have become unmanageable. I have a routine and it's almost as mechanical as um, eat a meal, brush your teeth and floss. And that routine happens during the first few moments that I'm awake. I Thank God that I am 
hear that I have a new day. And I say the words of step one. I may vary them um, and say them in a way that is most likely to grab my emotions because doing things mechanically is not enough for me. But I do say those words. I ask God to allow me to be abstinent, to be sober with my food. And I follow that up with pretty much going through, reviewing, scanning the rest of the steps. Um, I guess it's more than just step one, but because uh, I can't do step, I cannot do step one without following it up with the rest of the steps. It's it's too devastating to me to just sit in step one, so I follow it up with the rest of them. I hope that is an adequate response. I'm probably going to continue to think about that. So thanks for listening. Thank you, Marjorie. And Sarah, are you available to respond to Kathy's question? Go ahead. Thank you. Yes, uh, thank you for the question. Um, I, too, have a daily routine. Um, unlike Marjorie, it doesn't start in the first moment of my day because just between us until I get some coffee in me, nothing's really happening with my day. That first sponsor who I talked about surrendering to sent me something called the abstinence prayer, and it's on a laminated piece of paper. And I have to tell you, the few times I thought I've lost this, I've been apoplectic, and I do have other copies, but the one that she sent me means so much to me. And in that prayer, I thank God for my abstinence for the day ahead, That was such an important concept for me, to claim it at the beginning of the day and say, this is going to happen. It took me a year to get abstinent. I didn't say that in my share. It took me a year, and I needed to claim it at the beginning of the day and say, yes, God, with your help, I'm going to be abstinent today. So in that abstinence prayer, I thank God for my abstinence for the day ahead, which I realize is nervy. It's kind of chutzpahdick, but it's it's good. And then I, um, in that prayer, I take the first three steps around my food. So that's what I do with step one. I really, you know, I I try to practice program principles throughout the day, but my day really caps with step 10, which for me is actually the encapsulation of all the steps. And that's why that step 10 is so critical. I had a friend early in recovery who said, it's all about step 10, it's all about step 10. I thought, what is she talking about? Why is she always going on about step 10? Well, now I get it. But that is really, that encapsulates all the other steps. I'm able to see how I'm doing on all my steps. I'm able to clean up messes, um, make amends before they become a problem, look for any selfishness, self-seeking, dishonesty, fear, before they become huge character defects, um, stuff like that. So I cap my day with, uh, with step 10, um, which, again, to me, encompasses all the steps. And, um, you know, and I cap my day with prayer. So I hope that's, that's helpful. And actually, sorry, I have one more thing to add to that, which is, um, sorry, part of my morning routine is really spending time in the in the AA literature. That's that's extremely important to me too. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Kathy, for the question. Marjorie, you also responded. Thank you. Anyone else questions this morning related to step one? <laughs> 
Hi, my name is Joan. I'm from Kentucky. I've been in OA for years, um, relatively successful, but I've been listening to Vision for You, and I really want what you guys have. Could you tell me what, it, what, how I could get a sponsor to start working this program according to the big book? Thank you. Welcome. I missed your name, actually. Joan. Joan, welcome to you. Joan from Kentucky, welcome to you. Well, um, after we uh, complete this recording, I'll certainly invite you to leave your phone number with all of us, and I also invite you to come tomorrow morning when we greet the newcomer. You can leave your name and number there as well. let people know you're looking for a sponsor. So welcome. Any other questions? Yes, Joan? Uh, I know this must be... Hello? uh, I know this is the right thing to do because as you were speaking and telling me how to start, my throat swole up and tears came down. So I'll be there. We're glad you're here. Welcome to you. Yes, I heard someone speak up. Yes, that would be Paula. Paula, good morning. Yes, we can. Good morning. I heard um, Sarah D. say something, and it just kind of triggered something in me or or came together for me, and I just wondered. You said that it took you a year before you finally put the, the food down. Now, can you clarify that, what that meant as far as where were you in the steps? I mean, were you still working the steps? Um... I, I'm just curious if you could clarify that, hon. I would yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, sure. I, it was. It feels like such a long time ago, <laughs> um, but because it was 2005. But yes, I was in steps one, two, and three. And I want to clarify that during that time, I was not. And I mean, I, I hesitate to say this because I don't want to make it sound like this is okay. What I was going to tell you is, during that year that it took me to get abstinent, I was not binging but I was not 100% clean with my food yet. I was not honest, 100% honest yet. And what I had in that year, I was working steps one, two, and three at the time. Um, I was doing fits and starts of abstinence. I would get a day, then I'd slip. Then I'd get two days, then I'd slip. Um, You know, I'd eat something I didn't commit, or I'd eat an extra ounce of something that I did commit, that kind of stuff. And at the time, it was very discouraging. And I have to tell you, I'm so grateful that I had, um, you know, that I had the sponsor I did who really um, encouraged me and, and stuck with me. And the the best thing I can tell you is I was so warped from the food. And I had so many years of compulsive eating that it really was for me a year of, um, replasticizing my brain, and I don't say that lightly. I'm very interested in neurobiology, and I'm really able to look back now and say, you know what, it took my brain that long to learn how to handle life without food. It took my spirit that long to learn how to handle life without extra food. So it wasn't a year of binging, but it was a year of getting rigorously honest and, and really getting deep into step one. Like there was a long time where I was convinced I could eat foods, but it turns out I really couldn't eat. Um, and it just took me a little while to, to be willing to give those up. So that's that's my experience, and 
do with it what you will. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for that clarification. Thank you, Paula. Anyone else? Questions related to step one? Anything this that would be out of it? Yes, I'm Sherry, sorry. go ahead. <laughs> Hi, this is Sherry from Kentucky, a compulsive overeater. And I had a question about something Sarah mentioned about surrendering her will to her sponsor. And that really, it kind of set me back a little bit because I, I don't, I, I'm an, I've been in program since January of this year. So I'm still a newcomer and I'm on step two. And it just, it's never occurred to me to surrender my will to a human being. And um, it kind of made me very uncomfortable to hear that. And I did, I just wanted maybe some clarification on um, really kind of what that meant. So I pass. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for your, um, for your honesty. And (laughs) I understand why that made you uncomfortable. Um, you know, in program, we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God uh, as we understood him. And I have to tell you that, again, when I came in, I was so willful and so defiant. I didn't know which way was up. And, you know, to me, I ate literally all day, every day, whatever I wanted, the concept of not eating what I wanted when I wanted was anathema to me. I couldn't even understand how people did that. So for me, I had to take direction from a human form. And I will tell you, if I didn't do that, I would never have gotten abstinent because I thought I, I, thought I knew best. I thought I could do it my way. So I definitely didn't view my sponsor as God. But in terms of the practicalities, she had what I wanted She had abstinence. She was happy, joyous, and free. She had physical recovery with significant weight loss, which is what I had to attain. And so to get what she had, I felt like I needed to do what she did. So for me, it was really, yeah, it was surrendering to God. It was surrendering my will and my life over to to the care of a higher power. But I needed someone to give me very concrete direction. And as much as I wanted God to come down in a burning bush and give me those instructions, it wasn't going to happen. And so I had to look to this human being who, who was recovered and who had what I wanted, and I had to do what she said. And she sent me such a powerful email when I was negotiating with her about her sponsee requirements. She said in this email, and I mean, keep in mind, this is like eight years later, and I remember this verbatim. She said, I hope you're willing for once in your life to do something different and just trust. And it hit me in the heart. Because I, it just was so clear to me. I had been doing it my way, and my way had gotten me to misery, 250 pounds, and having to run out in the middle of the night to replace the food I had lost so my family members didn't know I had eaten it in the middle of the night. So that's, for me, that was what surrendering to a sponsor meant. It didn't meant that I gave her ultimate control over my life, that she made big decisions for me, but in terms of getting me started in the 12-step program, I needed I needed to surrender to somebody who, who was recovered, and um, that paved the way for me to put down the food and then turn my will and my life over to a higher power. Does that make sense? Maybe. 
It does to me. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Sarah. Thank you. And thank you to Sarah for call. the question. I'm sorry. I Hi. was muted, and I, I did say that, yes, it made sense. I apologize. Oh, no problem. <laughs> I, I have a question, please. Yes, your name. Thank you. Uh, my name is Donna, compulsive overeater. And, uh, you know, I just want to thank you for um, all all everybody does to work the 12th step. It's very inspiring, and I feel like you're friends that I haven't met, so thank you. Um, I do have a question. When you just explained um, how your first year went, it's like you were telling my story. And um, I do listen to A Vision for You Faithfully and um, et cetera. So, but I do have a question. I am in that first year that you just talked about. And I wanted to know, I heard Ruth one time say, another speaker say, um, she gets up in the morning and uh, thanks God for the willingness, for, for her abstinence. So I tried doing that. And I wonder what you, just plain and simple, I wonder what you do. Did you ask for the willingness to be abstinent that whole time? Or, um, did, you know, we all wake up abstinent and then did you just thank God? I mean, I'm just, just struggling in this, in this first step. Thank you for your answer or your reply. Thank you. Sarah, you want to respond, and then we'll go to Marjorie for a response as well. Um, yeah, I just need a little clarity of the question, uh, which was basically how did I find the willingness? Was that the question? Right, like as you were grazing and doing your own thing through that first year, how, how did you did you pray? Did you continue praying for the willingness? Or um... yeah, like I said, my sponsor sent me that abstinence prayer pretty much once we started working together. And I did pray that prayer every morning. So some morning <laughs> for that year it wasn't fulfilled. Some days it wasn't fulfilled because I chose I chose to pick up. So, yes, I did pray for willingness. And I'm just so grateful that I, you know, was um, persistent during that time. And, and simultaneously, this is going to sound very strange, I was, sim- I was simultaneously gentle and tough. I was tough on, you know, trying to work the program, trying to, you know, turn my will over, trying to get the disease under control, um, or doing what I needed to do to let God get the disease under control is a better way to say it. But then when I messed up, which was um, frequent in that first year, less as the year went on, I was gentle with myself when I messed up, and I really looked at it as a learning process. But I did continue to pray for willingness. And more importantly, I think the thing I really want to emphasize is that I knew the solution was here. I knew the solution was here. I knew that um, I was utterly powerless. And that's why this step is so important, because if you're holding on to the illusion that you can control this, if you're holding on to the illusion that, like my husband, you're a normal leader and you can have one of something and then just rein it in, you're not going to be willing to, to continue with the, with the work and continue with the, with the other steps. And, and another important thing I, I think I want to say is that, for me, there really was this washing out period of my binge foods and this refining of learning what I couldn't take in in my body and that the cleaner I got with my food, the easier the surrender became because I wasn't triggering the physical allergy that the big book talks about so eloquently. So I hope that, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very Thank much. 
Yes. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Marjorie, would you also share for a moment on the actual separation from your binge foods and binge behaviors? Sure. Um, the the at the time that I came into OA, there were food plans. A few years later, there were no food plans. I found it easier to have a food plan. So first I tried one, and then I tried another, and then when there were no food plans, I went to doctors and nutritionists, and um, and I did a lot of experimenting that way. And what I discovered over that period of time was even though I had initially thought that it was sweets that were my problem. After a couple of years, I found out it was grains and starches, and then it was salt, and then it was certain fruits and vegetables and proteins, and then other vegetables. And so it was a learning process with regard to the food, and then finally getting to a point where I was fed up with trying different things, and I picked the, the way that had worked for me for a significant period of time. I also was continuing to go to meetings, continuing to have sponsors, although I finally had used up every sponsor in my local area. And um, and I would try prayer, but I would try whatever prayer anybody gave me. It didn't matter to me whether it meant anything to me because nothing was really meaning anything to me. I was so drunk on the food. So one prayer that I remember, this was probably in, that I picked this up around 1983, I started thanking God for the pain. And it would become a prayer that I repeated over and over and over again, thank you, God, for the pain. Thank you, God, for the pain. And instead of fighting the pain, I just went with it. And I want to go back to what it says in the 12 and 12, where it talks about um, going out and trying more, more eating. You know, if you're not convinced, try some more eating. It also talks about this in the big book. And so there I was with all this pain, and the book says, the 12 and 12 says, after a few such experiences, often years before the onset of extreme difficulties, he would return to us convinced he had hit bottom as truly as any of us, John Barleycorn had become our best advocate. So I had Sarah Lee and Pepperidge Farm and Entenmann's and uh, my own concoctions that finally brought me to enough pain. Um, I just kept experimenting. I just kept not quitting. I had no place else to go. Thanks for letting me talk about it. Thank you, Marjorie. And again, thank you, Sherry, for the initial question. Anyone else with a question related to step one? This is Joy in Tennessee. Can I ask a question? Yes, go ahead, Joy. Um, My dilemma is a little bit different. I 
consider myself a compulsive overeater. I am 5'8". I have never weighed more than 160 pounds. But you give me a jar of peanut butter and I can go through it in a couple of days and whatever. So I'm having trouble with step one because I'm saying, well, you know, OA talks so much about being overweight and, and your life depends on it and whatever. What happens to me when I eat too much sugar is I don't sleep too well. I feel tired. I, I, when I answer the 15 questions on are you a compulsive overeater, I can answer 11 of them. But I think I'm having really trouble with step one because I, I don't want to be a compulsive overeater. I, 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 and, and I guess I'm looking for a sponsor who is probably not overweight, not underweight, just a normal weight, but who still compulsively eats. So, you know, when I go into a store, I know I can't have a snack. I know I, I, I try to time things so that I'm not there because once I fall off the wagon, I'm gone. Um, but for some reason, I've never weighed more than 162 um, pounds in my life, and I'm 5 feet 8. So I don't know if this makes sense, but it it's driving me crazy because I, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm going to die from it, but I'm pretty tired. So thanks. Thank you, Joy. Either of our speakers like to address that question? I would. This is Sarah. Go ahead. Um, thank you so much for that question. I'm really glad you brought it up. And I... It makes me very glad that I talked about sponsoring women who um, didn't have outward manifestations of the disease. One person who came to mind um, came was very tall, like almost she's a woman, almost six feet tall. Her whole family beanpole skinny, um, and she was naturally very athletic in a, in a very healthy way. So she never put on weight, and I will tell you, she could eat anybody under the table. She answered many of the questions on the compulsive eating quiz that you spoke about. She would go into grocery stores where they had samples, and she would spend hours trying the samples. She would binge every night. So, you know, there are a lot of people who are who are in your shoes, and I think it's just really important to, to claim your seat, and, and I'm, I'm glad you spoke up. So I had a couple of, of thoughts. One is that, first of all, in that case – you know, focusing on the unmanageability in the other areas is what's really important. So, yeah, you're not going to relate to not, you know, to taking up two bus seats. That's fine. But you just said that your eating affects your sleep. And I'm sure, you know, it affects other things that that you know that we don't. So I would focus on those issues. And the other thing is, and, and, I, and I say this tenderly, so, so don't take it the wrong way, in terms of finding a sponsor and talking about the weight of a sponsor, this is where um, a lot of people come in like looking for a sponsor who's very much like them. I've had people say, I want a sponsor who has kids or doesn't have kids, blah, blah, blah. And I always guide people to look for a sponsor who has what you want in recovery because all those other things are external. What the big book um, talks about is that we share a common disease. It doesn't talk about that the manifestations of the disease are the same, but it says we share a common disease and, more importantly, we share a common solution. So um, in terms of finding a sponsor, I would just encourage everybody to look big picture and look for someone who has, you know, who has, you know, solid recovery and, and to forget about the superficial things and, and to focus on the unmanageability in whatever form that came up. Thank you. Sarah, for the response and Joy for the question. Thank you. Anyone else this morning with questions related to step one? We're taking uh, a look at the AA 12 and 12, what 
the essay related to step one. So any questions related to that or anything that the speaker spoke about this morning? This is Marjorie, and I would like to ask Sarah to elaborate on something that she said. Go right ahead. Yeah, I'm listening. (laughs) Um, Sarah, you said that pain became your greatest asset, and I would like you to elaborate on that in terms of the pain that you experienced before completing your your entry into abstinence and then as your recovery grew. Right. Hold on, I'm just taking notes. Um, so, no, thank you for that question. Um, my pain was my greatest asset. Um, initially, so before I headed into abstinence, it was my greatest asset because it got me here. You know, we were just talking about physical manifestation of the disease, and I didn't mean to sound casual at all about making it sound like it wasn't a big deal because I think that people wear this disease in many forms, and some of us don't wear it externally at all, as as we've heard and as as I have experienced as a sponsor. But I have to tell you, with my level of disease and with my level of stubbornness, I don't think I would have been willing to do the step work unless I was as large as I was. And I just have to be very blunt about that. I was so young when I came into recovery. I was so immature that I don't think I could have said, you know, regardless of my size, I'm hell on wheels. I'm yelling at people in the street. I'm leaning on the horn of the car. Maybe I need to do a little work. I didn't have the self-awareness at the time to say that. I knew I wasn't good. I knew I was ruining friendships, but I didn't have that next degree of, of awareness to say, here's what I need to do. So for me, the fact that I was so obese, so massive, and by the way, I'm five foot one and a half, so 250 pounds on me is massive. My biggest jeans were a size 26, and my wedding dress was a size 22. So for me, the pain of compulsive eating, the unmanageability of my life, and really the immediate catalyst of the unmanageability of my size is what got me into program, which is what saved my life. So that was my greatest asset. As my recovery grew, I had a really um, difficult and interesting experience Uh, I was working um, as a journalist. I had a very niche um, specialty in healthcare journalism. I really loved my career, and I became um, extremely ill with late-stage Lyme disease. I had what was called stage 4 Lyme, which is the stage right before it kills you, and it completely ruined my body. So I actually became disabled at age 31. I lost all ability to use my arms. That is no exaggeration. I couldn't drive for three years. I couldn't write. I couldn't type. My husband had to wash my hair because I couldn't lift my hands to my head. So I was faced with being 31 years old, 
living in Washington, D.C., which is extremely career-focused and image-focused, and all of a sudden having no job and really questioning my self-worth. And I have to tell you that program and the fact that I had experience, that even though I couldn't use my hands, I couldn't work, I was in extreme pain. I can't even tell you the pain I was in. It was on a scale of 10, it was a 9. In spite of that, I felt like my time on earth was worth something, not only because I believe I'm a child of God, but because I had something to share with another compulsive eater. I continued to stay sponsored, and I continued to sponsor other women. And so for me, I have to tell you, in a a strange way, my disease saved my life in that time because, you know, I remember I was seeing a psychotherapist, and she said, you know, you're my only patient on disability who's up before 10 in the morning. And I said, that's right, I'm up, I'm sponsoring, I've got to call my sponsor. So this literally gave me a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And so in that way, again, my disease, my pain became my greatest asset. And my pain also led me to be willing to do the step work that I had to do. I owed tremendously painful amends to people. Um, I was, like I said, I was really a nasty person, and I, one of the most... um, painful amends to me was to my husband's family. I was um, extremely cruel to one of his, one section of his family at our wedding. And I'm so embarrassed to tell you this, but God, if it helps somebody, it's worth it. I was a sick person and I had to make amends to that part of his family. And it was so painful to do and it was so healing. And so my pain helped me in terms of getting willing to make those amends. And then in terms of you know, getting to that point, doing it, brought me to the next level of recovery and saved my life. So, you know, I've been through the past six years of disability, pain, tremendous grief, tremendous loss, and have been able to stay abstinent through that. And so I I guess that's what I mean when I say my pain is my greatest asset. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Marjorie, for the question. Anyone else this morning? Questions related to step one? Star one to unmute. Going once. Twice. And three times. I'll take the silence as a no. (laughs) Thank you again, Marjorie and Sarah, for sharing uh, so much with us related to step one, your experience, and bringing to life the pages of the commentaries in the AA 12 and 12 regarding step one. We thank you very much. I will now close this morning's meeting with the way we always close a vision for you, and that is with the reading from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. 
Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God and keep you until then.